Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. I've got an update, which is that I have had a productive week, so the mojo oh, is yeah. back. I forgot. You're going to let us know how your week went last week. So, so what happened? How did you get your mojo back? What have you done? Um, I just decided that enough was enough and that um, I needed to get out of my own head and I needed to, to just yeah get, get back to it. So I have done that and uh, yeah, it's going good. I've uh, painted two canvases this week, so I am happy with myself and happy with my output and production and also we've been working on a lot of podcast stuff um which has made me feel very productive because i think working on on something over here that's not related to my artwork actually still encourages me to be creative to to get that kind of work ethic kicking off again um so that's been great and one of the things we've been working on is of course access which is on the 2nd of february yes if you haven't signed up to that yet you can go to creativerebels.co forward slash access to sign up there uh, and we'll send you over a link just before the event uh, if you don't know what access is access is our live events that we do every single month where we do a small talk and then question and answers so if you've got any questions around creativity business all of those things that we talk about on this lovely show come along to access yes they're a lot of fun they're totally free as well so go to creativerebels.co forward slash access and get yourself signed up and we look forward to seeing you there on february the 2nd um this episode that we've got coming up um it'll probably turn out to be our most listened to episode yeah and i don't know if i should point this out because because uh, now people will notice it but i think this is the the episode that i've been most nervous for and certainly when i like you were called as a cucumber but when i listened to it back i was just like you're nervous david yeah i don't think i did feel too nervous during this and it was weird because it's one of those ones where you're kind of interviewing one of your heroes like when we started this podcast he was one of my top three people who I would possibly want mm. on the show. Um, so that's this week's guest, Seth Godin. And it was like, fuck, we've got a small period of time to talk to Seth Godin, someone we've wanted to talk to for a really, really long time. What do we say? What kind of questions do we ask? What will provide the most value to the listeners as well as feeding our kind of like what we want to know personally? We knew we had a limited time slot as well. So with with a lot of our guests, we know we can go over, but it's like, it's it's the godfather, Seth Godin. So you you, you want to be respectful of his time. There's certain bits in the episode where that like a bit that pops up in my mind was when he was talking about like this, this charity that he's involved in. My instinct was like, oh, I'd really love to chat about that. And there's loads of little kind of <laughs> hooks that he gave you that you're kind of like, oh, I want to, I want to bite on that hook. But then at the back of my head is always like let's squeeze the most we can out of this Seth Godin lemon and get all of that all of that good juice for the listeners so um so yeah I I kind of kept it very much on on topic yeah and I think this is such a good episode like listening back to this and editing this earlier this week it was like whoa yeah this is a really good episode and I was like oh like every now and again you say something I'm like yeah because it's like when you're actually interviewing someone it's a very different thing to listening to it because your head's constantly running at a million miles an hour trying to think about what could I ask next? What other questions I have written down? How are we going to lead this? Like, you're, There's just so many things that you're calculating that you sometimes don't actually get to appreciate the conversation. So it's so good to be able to listen back to it and be like, oh yeah, that was a bloody fascinating bit of advice he said in there. And I think it's also interesting how succinct he is with everything too. I think that comes from writing so much that you get your thoughts so perfectly aligned that he just knows what his answers are and he's very, very certain on everything. We obviously put a load of pressure on ourselves, but we do really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, and if you do, please share it on your Instagram stories because that would mean the world to us and it would mean that other people are going to listen to this interview, which we really want because I think people are going to get loads from this. 
one yeah, of my this will be one that people definitely re-listen to oh dude so like yeah this will be one that people will re-listen to with a with a pen and paper because there's there's so much in there that you might miss it on first time i've listened to it twice back already and and yeah, yeah, on yeah. the second listening i got i picked up on things that i literally had just like floated over me it's so weird yeah but um one of my favorite things that he talks about in his new book the practice is basically the rush to the bottom of if you're in a crowded marketplace so for example if you're on like a freelancing site where everyone pretty much has the same service to offer then it's a race to the bottom of just who can provide the the cheapest service so Seth's kind of advice on that is is to become outside of that to become known and respected and that people will come to you no matter and it's, it's stuff we talked about with Daniel Priestley as well of of being known and respected so that people want you and they're not just looking for the cheapest price they're looking for you in particular i feel like when you're a creative getting started like it's really easy to be like well i want to sell my work now where can i do it and there are places like fiverr where you can sell your services and etsy where you can sell like whatever products you're selling and i think those particular platforms work well if you're on the receiving end if you're the person buying it because things are cheap and if you just want something fast it's perfect but i think as a creative if you want to make a living from it it's really, really hard to actually sustain a career based on those services, those platforms. So I think a lot of people, especially creatives, I see it all the time where they'll make an Etsy account because it's really easy and be like, okay, well, I want to sell a thousand prints on here. So I'm going to put them up at 20, 30 pounds and all the orders are going to come in. But generally, if you don't have that existing audience to start with, those platforms aren't really going to push you in a direction that's going to allow all of these people to find you. So you, what you find is you end up just underpricing your work and it can never really be that tipping point from turning it from being just like a little hobby into a career. And I think if you want to turn it into a full career, you really need to kind of break down how much you need to earn from a print and start to value your work a bit more. Because I think if you are selling things at 20, 30 pounds and you don't have that big audience, then it's going to be really, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the the room that you're in also affects affects that so if you post up a print on linkedin for example and say these are going for 500 pounds each it's not so unexpected in there and there are certainly clients within linkedin that system that have that sort of money to spend on etsy i'm sure there are people that are pricing their stuff in that that higher range but for the most part it is that that super affordable um and i've seen it on tiktok actually of, of creators posting up their stuff and really undercharging posting up like prints yeah. for 25 quid or something and then them getting in the comments this is not worth this amount there's uh there's someone specifically actually i can i could be really specific with this of there's a girl who um does hand painted these hand painted key rings they're like on leather uh, of like of your pet yeah. and i think they're 45 pounds each now for the amount of time that she spends on that 45 pounds is very very cheap but people in the comments are complaining that this is too expensive um your your ideal client is not a 12 year old kid that's on tiktok um yeah and and although it's a good very good place to grow and get awareness and obviously there are some people on there that have got that that kind of cash for the most part the people that are going to be interacting with you and leaving that for them 45 pounds is too much to spend on a piece of bespoke handmade art but then equally if you are trying to turn this into your career that means that you've got to sell a hell of a lot of 45 pound keychains in order to keep the lights on and yeah. that's that's stressful having to go to if your prints are only 20 quid knowing how many prints that you've got to 
to in, in order to afford your weekly shop how many prints you're going to have to sell each month that's that's scary yeah especially and like to pay your rent and all those kind of things that are like bigger like you're gonna if you're selling a print for 20 pounds and you want to make 40 grand in a year you need to sell 2,000 prints and if you break that down to how many you need to sell a month that is loads and if you're spending all your time trying to do the marketing around just selling these things for a small amount of money you're going to fall out of love with it so quickly because doing that marketing isn't the fun part being the creative is so as soon as you find yourself spending more time in the marketing than doing the creating you're going to just completely fall out of love with it and i think that's why a lot of people stop doing whatever their kind of creative practices because they're like it's too hard to make money from this but that's only because they've set themselves up in a way that they've made it really hard for themselves because they've said that okay i'm going to give this away for a really low price and i need to sell thousands of them to actually make some money Whereas I think one way you can use it well, and I think this is what everyone should think about when they're, whatever their practice is, is to have some form of product that is high value. So whether that's like, if you're an artist, then that's hand-painted paintings, like that's your pinnacle. Or, and maybe you use your Etsy platform or your smaller platform to drive people to that. So you have every sale that you make of a print that's say 50 pounds, I wouldn't ever price it below 50 pounds. And the reason I say I wouldn't price it below £50 is because it then qualifies your buyer. So if someone's willing to spend £50 on it, then there's a chance that they will be willing to pay a lot more for something that's more premium, like a hand-painted version rather than a print. If you price it really low and it's suddenly something that everyone can afford, then more people are going to buy it. Like if you put something out for a pound, you're going to get a lot more people buy it but than someone who's going to buy it for £50. But that £50 buyer, they are so much more likely to spend a thousand pounds on the actual hand-painted version so i think you need to use those platforms if you are using them currently to di- to drive traffic to something that is a high cost item because it's like that's what's going to sustain you and i i don't even think that you would get more sales at the, at the one pound level because i think that humans are very very strange and we have this whole thing of of perceived value and as soon as you tell me yeah. it's worth one pound then i basically value it's basically valueless to me and the same is for a 20 pound print i look at that and i go well if i could just buy it for 20 quid it's it can't be worth that much um my I, this is interesting so i've i've just released a, a print with a gallery called nelly duff um, and all of my prints that are for sale through them are 295 pounds and so i so i mean there's there's such a gap there like i mean i could produce those and sell them for 20 quid on etsy or i could or go to a different room they're being sold by a gallery that is established and and has a reputation they're there for sale for nearly 300 pounds and it all of a sudden it it's worth 300 pounds because of the room it's in i think what's interesting there is as you're saying that i'm thinking of what like well who would spend a small amount of money on something and I think back to like being a kid and buying posters where there'd be like five pounds for posters on my wall. But that's for a kid. Or maybe like when I was at uni, I had my pin board and loads of different small things on there. And everything on there would be affordable. But as soon as you're trying to sell to people who own houses or have got like flats or somewhere that they want to furnish, they're less likely to have a display on their wall of loads of things that cost them a pound or 20 quid because they want to kind of have something that shows that, that shows their status. And that's going to generally come from something that costs more money. So people are more likely to spend a lot of money on something because it's going to make them think that this gives me more status, this has a higher value, and I want to furnish my house with things that have a high value. So, because it's like people aren't going to go and buy the cheapest sofas and like the cheapest things if they're trying to like go for the status of how things look in their house. I mean, when you look at a Gucci t-shirt, 
being six hundred pounds, then that just goes to show that, that so much of this is is just about declaring yeah. to the outside world. I, I think there's no one size fits all option for this and there are obviously creators that are crushing it that are selling multiple items at a a low price and they're selling enough of those that is actually generating high high revenue i just think that based on the sample size that i have which is going through the messages that we get on the creative rebels instagram seeing the people that follow us and looking at their artwork which for the most part is really really good like you guys are producing amazing stuff because your branding is not there to present it as this is of high value and because your marketing is not there to increase your audience and and show people this this work that you've spent ages creating the the value is coming down and and so many people are undercharging because the thought is if i charge this cheaply then i'll get a sale and a, and one sale is better than no sales but actually yeah. for us, what we found that works for us is price it high and then that one sale actually counts. Yeah, that one sale will make a huge difference rather than actually if you're only selling things for 20, 50 pounds, actually the amount of time it's gone into making it, putting it up there and doing all these things, you're actually not making anything. Yeah, trips to the post office. New time. But yeah, like I remember when we first started our business, we were pricing things low because we thought that that would be the best way to sell them to most amount of people. And then after a few years of doing it, we're like, actually, we're not making any money on these for the amount of time that we're spending on it. So then suddenly we put our prices up and things didn't and things didn't really change in terms of things coming in. And I think this reminds me of when we talked to Kellyanna, how she was saying she doubled the price of her prints and they kept selling at the same rate. She doubled the again and they kept selling again. So I think it is really important to almost whatever you're pricing now, if you just doubled it, you'd probably find you'd get the same amount of sales as you are now anyway. We want you guys to be really successful. So when we give this advice, it is it is with love and it is, it is what has worked for us in the past. As with everything, make sure you've got your safety net. Like if you're doing experiments like this, make sure that you, that you have got enough yeah. in the bank that if this experiment of doubling your prices doesn't work, that you're not going to... Um, get yourself in trouble but but do try it i do think that most people are undervaluing their work and we're currently writing our book at the moment there's going to be a lot in there that talks about pricing because i think it's a, it's something that has definitely been flagged by you guys that it's it's something you're you're worried about and i think that all of the advice that you'll listen to in in this uh, episode with seth and in previous episodes with people like daniel Priestley, it does feel counterintuitive um, but honestly, it, it does work. It's very scary as well. I mean, my, my dad's a plumber, well, he's retired now, but um, he very much comes from that that sort of background of, of like getting work in, charging, like charging yeah. what it costs to survive. And I remember as a kid always saying to my dad, like, you're, you charge too cheaply. You're, you're the best at what you do and you, and you don't charge enough for it. Um, because a, a British gas, for example, would come in and charge like three times what my dad was charging. And yeah. when we were starting the business, my the advice my dad was giving me was was to like charge low and and make sure make sure that you get those clients, get them in. And it's very scary to go against that advice. I like go against your dad, but it's like no, I, I actually think yeah. we definitely did the right thing. And as soon as we started valuing our product and realizing, looking at what else was available. And going, okay, well, there's someone over here selling this product in a different industry that is worth this much, but the clients are all pretty similar. So if they're willing to pay that for that, then surely this is worth more. 
And then as you gradually get yeah. that confidence and you increase your prices and people do start to pay it, you realize, okay, this is the way to go. Yeah, I, it reminds me of a post I saw on Instagram um, only a couple of months ago, actually. It was a, a picture of a skipping rope that was being sold for 600 pounds. And there was like a yoga mat or something that was also being sold for 600 pounds. And like the message attached to it was something along the lines of, if you think you're overpricing your work, just remember someone spending 600 pounds on a skipping rope. And it's like, it is just, it, so much of it just comes down to how you brand yourself and what price you put on your things because it's only you who's got the choice of how much things it's going to sell for. Yeah, Seth mentions in, in this episode about finding the right clients and he said something really poignant, which is the the right client is not is not someone who's like your regular client, but just has got more money. So it's not we're we're not just advocating that you go and find someone who's got whose money bags who wants to who's just got money to burn. That's not the goal. The goal is to find people who respect your work. They they're into what you do. They they're happy to pay a premium because they want something that is valuable to them because they are aligned with what you're trying to do on this planet. Um, and I think that's that's yeah. the beautiful synergy. It reminds me of something you told me recently, and it's happened to me as well. Like within the past week where someone's told us that they're saving up for what we're selling. And I think as soon as you can get that, where people are willing to save up to get what your service is, what your product is, it's like, that's the kind of commitment you want from a client, not someone who's just going to be like, oh yeah, I'll have that and I don't care. We're going to be talking a lot more about pricing coming up in the future, but for now, let's get into this week's episode. Yes, Seth Godin is an author, entrepreneur and teacher. Seth has written 18 books and over 7,000 blog posts. That's 7,000. His latest book, The Practice, is designed to give you confidence to start making and sharing creative work. Hi, Seth. How are you guys doing? Good, thanks. How are you? Day by day. That's all we can do. Start where you <laughs> are and start now. I'm going to start off with, with a big statement. Um, you say, do what you love is a phrase for amateurs and love what you do is the phrase for prof professionals. And what did you mean by that? Well, a lot of people who are staking out a creative's life are seduced by the idea of being authentic and by somehow sharing what's within them. And I think that that's absurd on its face because our whole lives, ever since we got out of diapers, we have made calculated choices about what will work and what doesn't. You don't throw a tantrum uh, in the middle of the street just because you didn't get what you want because it won't help you get what you want. Even if you feel like it, tantrums are for toddlers. And so chasing around whatever uh, thing you think the muse has handed you is a trap. And you aren't entitled to succeed with anything. What you are able to do is find a problem and try to solve it. What you are able to do is do the work for the person you have made a promise to. That the work, if it's your hobby, should be for you. You should do whatever is authentically you. But if you're a professional, make a promise and keep it. And that doesn't come from the authentic you. That comes from the intentional you. How do we find the problems that other people have? Like, how do I find what is the problem that I'm put on this earth to help people solve? You weren't put on this earth to solve anybody else's problem, but you're here now. So the question is what <laughs> to do about it. What it means to have good taste is to somehow like something, bring something forward 10 minutes before other people realize it's what they wanted. And that is the work of a creative, to have enough empathy for the people you're seeking to serve, 
to figure out just a moment before they realize it that they need this thing. That's different than being an industrialist who says there's a market for bottled water, I'll make bottled water. This is the work of seeing on behalf of those who are trusting you to see. I think taste is a really interesting thing to touch on there because especially when you're getting started as a creative, like your taste is so far away from where you are currently that there's a massive kind of level to overcome there. And I think what stops a lot of people kind of really progressing in a creative field is the fact that their taste is so far away from where they are currently that they get a bit stuck and they get frustrated with themselves. How do you kind of like overcome that gap? That's absolutely brilliant. Um, I can't remember which well-known musician was talking about that gap between taste and skill, um, but it's completely true. The thing is, you're not going to be skilled at the thing you do until you practice it. And it would be nice if along the way, you earn the trust and compensation to do the practice, right? Um, but you might not. So you may have to practice quietly in the back where no one can see you. Uh, you're not, again, entitled to applause just because you started. The thing is that seeking the smallest viable audience is critical. You cannot get out of the gate and say this is for 100 million people because it's not. It might not even be for 10 people. But if you can do your work for five people, you get to do it better. You get to learn. And then maybe you get a chance to do it for 10. And if you look at you know the early work of Spike Lee or Banksy or uh, Joni Mitchell or anybody you want who you can see their demos, it's not like it is now that they developed over time. And at yeah. the beginning, you do your demos. And maybe you don't get paid for them, but you do the work so that you can improve your skill. Yeah, that seeking applause, I think, is something that, again, people getting started really struggle with because it's like they've created this thing, they've put out there, especially like I think social media now has such like an instant gratification thing attached to it, where they put it out and then like, well, I've done this thing, now I'm going to put it to the world, now everyone clap me. And they just instantly want that kind of like recognition straight away. And I think there's definitely this thing for people who just will create everything, put it out, just keep keep expecting a, an applause because that's what the people that they follow get. Because the people that they follow, you're just seeing these like perfect things that are really refined. Like, what would you say to those people? Well, I guess the question is, what's important to you? And why is the approval of this amorphous audience of mass the thing that is going to decide whether or not you're going to do your work? And if you can put yourself on the hook for a specific audience, as opposed to this general malaise of everyone, it's much more likely you're going to refine your work. And so I have discovered that putting myself on the hook is more gratifying than not being on the hook. If you want to be on the hook, make it for seven people. And that task of saying, there's only seven people in this room, I better please them, focuses the mind. That's very counterintuitive to what most creatives feel. Um, and I suppose there are very, very few actually real famous people in the world that everyone knows and everyone's heard of. I mean, you mentioned a couple of them there, Banksy certainly being one of them. Where, whereas I don't think we, we need to aspire to that fame anymore because 
there's there's rooms that Seth Godin walks into where he is the most famous person there. There are also rooms, I'm sure, where you walk in where no one knows you. And that's almost a lovely sort of um, level of achievement. So how how do we how do we learn to to accept less and not and not seek this this kind of mythical fame and rather just pleasing those that are interested in what we actually do? Yeah. So let's do the math first, Um, because I'm not famous and I'm glad I'm not. Uh, If my book sells a million copies, it will be the best-selling business book of the year in the United States. And that's only one out of every 300 people. So this isn't like being on network television. This is a very small group of people. But the real question is, why do we distract ourselves with the masses? Well, from an evolutionary sociology point of view, it's because if you're in the village and the people on the outskirts of the fire are angry at you, you might not sleep through the night, right? That bad things could happen. You have to make sure that everyone in your village of 30 is okay with you. So we're all trained to be aware of that one person around the edges who's upset. But it turns out in our culture, that's not the case. In our culture, if there are some people who don't get the joke, it means you've told a good joke. If there are some people who say this work isn't for me, it means you might have found someone who it is for because we don't all want the same thing. So this idea of shunning the non-believers is critical if you're going to do any work that matters. It reminds me of when we had a guy called Mike Winnett on the show and he said, in the early days is when you have to put out your best work. And it's really frustrating because you put out your best stuff, but no one's watching. And now someone like Gary Vaynerchuk is at the stage where they can just tweet a heart emoji and it goes all around the Twitter sphere. And I suppose it's it's producing your best work, but then without much crowd participation to help you to kind of steer the work in a way. I think we need to be really clear about what work means to be best right? It's not about box office. It's about, is it in and of itself? Did this thing I built do what I wanted it to do? Did I build what I needed it to be? And if we look at any great work of art, whether it's an opera or a piece of contemporary art, go down the list, you know, the, the, they just digitized all the work of Van Gogh and published it just a couple of days ago. And if you look, Certainly the, the pieces he did that had the most craftsmanship are not the most famous pieces. Yeah. And we need to not get hung up on whether the audience applauded the most, because that's not why we're doing this work. It's not to maximize applause. It is simply to have enough of a platform to do the work we believe we can do to make things better. And we're not running for elected office. We don't need a majority. We just need people who would miss us if we were gone. Yeah, absolutely. How much of that is of the work that we create is tied up in our identity? Because in the book, you mention uh, Dave Grohl talking about being 11 years old and at that moment deciding I'm a musician. And then that changes the, the whole course of his life. For those that are quote-unquote lost um is there a way to adapt a new identity to become this creative person that they want to become yeah i love the story of of dave because it's his mom's involved but i don't think it's universal 
because our identity probably doesn't have to do with the actual craft. It has to do with the emotions the craft brings forward. So when you guys started your tattoo thing, you felt that feeling, that magical feeling of this might not work. And then once it's up and running, I'm imagining you wanted to start a different thing because it's the feeling that's the identity, not that you were born yeah. to, to be tattoo artists, right? And that is a choice. And I've met people who have made that choice long into their lives. You don't have to make that choice when you're 11. You're not stuck with that. It's what feeling are you seeking? And many people want the feeling of I'm secure. I'm sort of seen, but only by people I want to be seen by and nothing's going to change because we were seduced into that feeling by the industrial system. But many people like the two of you, like me, want the feeling of I made this. This thing here, I made this. And even if people don't like it, at some level we're relieved because now we get to go make something else. What we don't mm -hmm. want is for the world that does, okay, wait six years and then you can make something else. I think one thing that really interests me that kind of it links a bit to what you're talking about there is just the idea of curiosity. And I think when if we're younger and we kind of, we're successful in being curious, we continue to do it as we grow up and we kind of get into a stage where we're not scared of the new. And we can continue to try new things because we're not scared. And like what you were talking about just there, it's like we have ran businesses, they've gone well, they've not gone well, but we're still curious enough to try again. I think there's a lot of people out there who don't have that curiosity or have lost it slightly because they feel like too scared to take that first step because it might go wrong. Whereas we know that it can go wrong, it, it doesn't matter because we can just try again. But others don't have that, have that. What would you say to people in that situation? I think that everyone was curious when they were four mm -hmm. and the work of the two of you the work of me is to remind people they can do it again and you were telling me before we started that that's the feedback when you do a good episode of the podcast and that's the feedback when i write a good book or blog post is reminding people of who they've been all along do you, do you think that's teachable as well do you reckon we can kind of teach people how to be more curious it's a skill. It's a skill as much as juggling is a skill. It's a skill as much as handwriting is a skill. I suppose for us, we try and show up in, in rather than just beating people over the head with it each week of be curious or just, just order them to do it. I suppose it's the way that we do it is just by introducing these stories of all of these hundreds of different guests and making sure that those voices are diverse as possible so that people can recognize, although that person may be so diametrically opposed to the last guest, so many elements of the journey are exactly the same. Yeah, teaching is 72% about getting enrollment. 72% uh, is about getting someone to want to do the thing. Um, I can't teach someone to, to have better handwriting if they don't want to have better handwriting. And the same thing's true yeah. with this creative journey. So you never do it directly straight on. You're going around the edges and shining lights and, yeah. and hoping that the shadows add up. Because I suppose as well, like by building trust over a long period of time, then you're more likely to be able to persuade someone to take that leap. I was thinking earlier about just how we have trust about things that are just random that you don't even think about. Like I was thinking like the, the drugstore that's like here. It's like, I'll happily go in there, pick up a packet, put something in my mouth and swallow it. It could be complete poison, yet I'm putting my trust in this company to just keep me alive. And it's funny how 
like that's been created from like nothing i've had no real like physical like emotional connection with that brand yet i put my life in their hands every day yeah and it, you know it's interesting i've i've worked with a company in nigeria where there's a real problem because many pharmaceuticals and and uh nutraceuticals in nigeria are faked and they've built an entire company around type texting the number that's on the pill and then a trusted source gets back to you and tells you if it's legit or not and just like I don't have to worry about clean water, I don't have to worry about that either. And so one of the things we think about as we add layers to civilization is we are giving leverage to creators. We're also creating a, a bedrock, a foundation of what can we trust so we don't have to spend emotional energy on it. And yet we then waste it by sitting at home watching Netflix for eight hours. <laughs> to tie that experience of the drugstore to, to the more sort of creative practices, I suppose that comes down to the consistency. Because I know that's something that you, you talk about all the time is that the most important thing, what your audience wants from you is consistency. And I suppose that because you do go to the drugstore every single day and you haven't been poisoned yet. Died so that's, far, yeah. Yeah, that's that's why you've yeah. developed that that trust. But it's it's the same for us. How important is that consistency? Right. So, you know, there's a reason that uh, Pfizer doesn't make weird placebos. Because even though weird placebos work because we believe them, it would undermine their consistency of saying, this is works in a double-blind study. For creatives, people... Um, who are looking to you to be a creative don't want you to keep playing the same song every day, right? There's a different group of people that do. That when the Doobie Brothers go on tour, when Ricky Lee Jones goes on tour, they want to hear the covers. They're playing the same songs. But to be consistent in the role that the two of you have means you have an answer to the question, what's new? And I answer that question every single day on my blog, what's new? And even though I know that almost all my readers have not read all 7,500 blog posts, I don't recycle them yeah. because I am consistently the guy who answers the question, what's new? So Seth, on that note, what's new? <laughs> well, what's new as of two weeks ago is I published the book, The Practice, which took seven or eight years to write. Um, and so now I have to do the hard work of helping people who didn't want to read it the first day decide that now that it's a worldwide bestseller, they'll read it the second day. Um, and then after that, I'll be off the hook because it's my reader's job to tell other people to read the book. And I can go back to having a big white wall in front of me with nothing on it. You know, a couple months ago, I uh, turned the workshop company Akimbo that I built into a B Corp and I don't run it or own it anymore because I can't do both build an institution and focus on what's new. So people who are better at it than I run it because I want it to grow and I don't want to not have an answer to the question, what's new? I think what you said there that's really interesting, and I know you talk about a lot, is the fact that you're basically gonna get your audience to market it for you because you'll create a product that will hopefully more people will talk about and it will kind of spread itself. Yeah, the spread itself part, I'm, I've never enjoyed uh, that actually happening. Um, it, it tends to be harder than that. Uh, the question <laughs> is, can you write something, create something 
that the people who read it, their lives will get better if they tell other people. And I would imagine that every single successful tattoo artist has that going for them because very few people get a tattoo to show no one that you got it to show somebody and it never goes away. Well, when you show it to someone, what do they say? And now a conversation takes place that is about your work. And that will only happen if your work is more than just good enough. Because if your work is simply good enough, I won't talk about what you did because it's now I'm just talking about me, not the person who added this value. You're listening to Creative Rebels, the podcast for creatives. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing this podcast in any way that you can. And so at what point do you know the tipping point between something being good enough and not good enough? Well, the semantics of good enough are very tricky because if your goal is to be remarkable, then good enough would mean good enough for people to talk about. So I mm-hmm. self-published this book when I was kicked out of the book publishing industry. There's a book inside the milk carton. I didn't have to put the book in a milk carton to write a book. The book is the book. But the milk carton gave someone something to talk about. Because the first 5,000 people knew they were the only people who had one. They knew that their life at work would get better if their company adopted my ideas. They knew that their status would go up if they could uh, brag about the fact that they had one of the cartons and everyone else didn't. So for all those reasons, they talked about it. And it became the best-selling marketing book of the decade because... I gave my readers something they needed to talk about. So was it good enough? Yes. By my definition, that was good enough. Anything more than that would have been wasted. I think what we'll probably do is recommend to our listeners that once they've read the practice, then they then read This Is Marketing, because it it feels like the next logical step from once you've made the work and and the work is, and you're consistently showing up and you're getting better each time you produce, then then the next step is to help people discover it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think other people can uh, help with that as well as I can. But what a lot of creatives do is they say, marketing is beneath me because they think marketing is about hype or selfishness or um, scamming people. Nobody wants to get hustled, uh, least of all me. And I'm not asking people to hustle. What I'm asking them to do is find the smallest viable group of people and serve them. And if you don't, then you're hiding your work. You're holding it back. And you're not the kind of person who would take that selfish choice. So the alternative is to say, there are people who need this and I made it for them. Yeah, I think that's that's one of my sort of biggest takeaways is because you mentioned that it's not finding thousands of clients, it's finding the right clients. And certainly for us, when we started our graffiti business, we realized very quickly that just painting a kid's bedroom um, was taking exactly the same amount of time that it was for us to paint a, a mural for a huge brand. And we could charge significantly more on this side. So um, certainly finding the right clients. But I, I feel like and I suppose it would come down to this sort of scarcity mindset. We often find that so many of our listeners would rather sell a hundred prints for 25 pounds each than just sell 
sell one print for a high for a high like how do you get over that that sort of hump of finding like finding who your ideal clients are so many of the people who are listening to this are freelancers not entrepreneurs freelancers Mm -hmm. like you me work with our fingers we get paid by the hour or by the job we don't make money when we sleep entrepreneurs are the opposite they shouldn't do the work they should hire people to do the work they should build something bigger than themselves. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, the barriers are, where do I raise funds and how do I scale? If you're a freelancer, neither of those things are important. If you're a freelancer, the only question is, how do I get better clients? That's it. Because you can't work more hours. The only difference between great freelancers and good freelancers is that great freelancers have better clients. Better clients demand better work. Better clients pay on time. They pay more. They talk about your work. Better clients are not simply richer versions of bad clients. It's a totally different attitude. And better clients tend to want to work with freelancers who are the kind of freelancers who deserve better clients. And so you have to start by acting that way first. You start by acting not to say, what do you need done? I'll do it. Because if your motto is you can pick anyone and I'm anyone, then you belong on Fiverr or Upwork or Elance and it's a race to the bottom. The alternative is they know I do this and I do this specifically. And I'm sorry if you want that. Here's a phone number of someone who does that, but I do this. And that's scary, which is why very few people do it. But then therein lies the power of that if everyone's too scared to do it, then that means there is a space for you. Correct. How would you go about finding good clients? Well, I think it's domain specific. You know, if you think about um, what is the difference between being uh, a seamstress who is uh, repairing clothes in uh, a neighborhood where you can't get more than a couple pounds to do the job versus an equally talented seamstress who's making $4,000 bespoke gowns, right? The only difference is which clients did you get? That when I started out in the book business, there were plenty of people who were willing to pay me $3,000 to write another version of a computer manual because I understood how computers worked and they needed them banged out. But that's really different than Simon & Schuster or penguin saying we need a singular voice here to do this and we will treat you that way because we're the same people who published harper lee right and the line in one place is longer than the line in the other place but the easy gigs aren't often the good gigs and Mm -hmm. you might want to just say i'm not even going to try for the easy gigs because very few people who get hooked on easy gigs graduate to the other gigs they're they're separate yeah there's definitely like a completely different mindset when it comes to approaching those clients the amount of work that goes into just sealing a job whereas yeah with a smaller client you're going to have maybe a small conversation you'll create something boom whereas as soon as it gets to someone with a good amount of money then that's going to be meetings after meetings after meetings to try and agree on something that finally becomes what it is you want but with that process i suppose there can be the trade-off of you losing a bit of your creativity along the way in exchange when you're working with those bigger companies. There are lots of ways to look at this. So let's think about uh, my friend Shepard. I don't know if you guys know him or not, but Shepard Ferry went to jail 30 times. Went to jail. 
30 times doing his work before he started getting $100,000 commissions from brands. Now, when a brand calls up Shepard or Amanda answers the phone, they don't say, well, let's have a bunch of meetings and we'll figure out what you want. They say, I'm Shepard Ferry. It costs $100,000. Send me a one-page memo. Maybe I'll read it. Right? Because he earned it. He went to jail 30 times. And you then have to think about what does it mean to stand for being you? And one of the challenges of dealing with big brands, big organizations, is there's enormous pressure to not be you, to go to all the meetings and take good notes. And you can make a living at that, but it's rare that you will end up with truly good clients. Truly good clients in many creative fields are intimidated by the creator. And they're there because the creator sees something they don't see. They're not mm -hmm. just a pair of hands. They're like, oh, you can do something we can't do ourselves. That's why we hired you. So no, yeah. we're not going to have a lot of meetings with you because if we could describe to you what we need done, we wouldn't need you. I suppose what you're talking about there is shepherds, shepherds earned that, that status and he's earned it by going to prison 30 times and you've earned it with 7,500 blog posts. And I suppose most people are trying to get to that stage before they have earned it. Right. And you can earn it without running into the law or spending 20 years, right? You earn it. My friend Brian Koppelman says that the question he gets asked the most is, how do I get an agent? And it's a trap. Brian and his partner made Ocean's 13 and he makes this TV show Billions. It's a trap. The agent's not going to solve any of your problems. The way you get an agent is by having the agent call you. And the reason the agent's going to call you is because you made something. So go make a five-minute video on YouTube that stuns people. And if you can't do that, you're not working hard enough. But once you do that, maybe your phone will ring, or maybe you'll need to do it again. But the difference between now and 1980 when I was coming up is the leverage is so different. I couldn't put my work anywhere in 1980, right? There was nowhere to put it. There were three business yeah. magazines. They were publishing. I read every business book that was published, and I couldn't do that now for even one day. And, <laughs> and so in every field, the number of ways we have to put our work in front of someone has gone through the roof. But the work you publish on your own account needs to be something that scares you enough that when it arrives, some people are going to hate it and some people are going to spread it. And one of those people who gets spread to is going to say, do that again for me. And they'll show up with money. What I love about like just the name of your book, The Practice, is the fact that so much of what makes a successful creative is the actual effort that goes into improving your craft over years and becoming an expert at that. Like there's a photographer we talk about quite a lot in this show who his work is just so good that he starts getting all of these great brands come to him because they want what he can produce. And we were talking to, we did a Q&A the other day with some people and there was an art student who was asking us a question about, um, she's wondering what to do with her artistic career. Does she try and approach galleries? And we were, was, my answer was to that was get so good that the galleries approach you because as soon as that happens, you're in control. Whereas as soon as it's the other way around, 
they're just going to take advantage or you're just not going to get what you want out of it? Yeah, exactly. So uh, in 1977, uh, Jill Greenberg took my photo. And it's the first published photo she ever took. She was 14 at the time. And she's gone on to become one of the most famous photographers in the world. And if you look at Jill's career, you know, the controversial photos she did of the kids crying with the pops, with the lollipops, the pictures of the polar bears, the, I mean, the list goes on and on that first everyone says, this is terrible. This will never work. And then a whole bunch of people hire her. And then the art director says, get me someone who looks like Jill Greenberg and her stuff gets copied and she has to pivot again. But you know, the misogyny aside, this series that's been going on of her in her career, 40 years of her first attracting skeptics, then proving the skeptics wrong, and then getting copied. It's not because she has a good agent. It's because she is a great client for herself. Yeah, I was talking to a photographer not too long ago, and um, she was saying the fact that she'll always put out her best work, give away all of her secrets, because that's what drives her forward. If she purposely gives away everything that she can do, then it's going to make her get better. Whereas I feel like a lot of people do kind of reach a certain level and just stop there and kind of think, oh, well, I've made it now. I've put in all my effort. Now it's time to sit back and reap the rewards. But it doesn't really work like that, does it? Yeah, hoarding is toxic. Um, Hoarding is toxic because the stuff you hold on to is radioactive. It's decaying and it doesn't grow. Yeah, I think you see that a lot in kind of like older businesses that, kind of not keeping up as much as they should be and they kind of think that oh well this worked once then it of course that's going to work forever um but yeah then you get newer people pop up and then they get frustrated with well this isn't fair i've i've been this expert why isn't this happening anymore right none of it's fair none of it's fair right now i am benefiting from the benefit of the doubt that i don't deserve but for 30 years i was punished by a benefit of the doubt i didn't get none of it (laughs) When you first started blogging, did you, do you think that you had some sort of understanding of everything that you've written about in the book? And is that what kind of spurred you on to blog every single day? Or was it a lot less complicated than that and it was just one foot in front of the other? The first 600, 800 blog posts are lost. We don't know where they are. Um, if you look at my oldest blog posts, it was at least a hundred in before I started sounding like me. Um, I can remember one of the first blog posts that sounded like me, it was called the Provincetown Helmet Insight, in which I wrote about why people in Provincetown, Massachusetts on the bike path, either both were wearing a bike helmet or neither was wearing a bike helmet. Um, And I was blogging sometimes twice a week, sometimes 20 times a week. And I looked at this work I was creating and I said, I don't like negotiating with myself about whether this is blog worthy or not, because I could talk myself out of it almost every time. And then there was too much drama on the days that I didn't talk myself out. Was it good enough? Right. Uh, There were also people who were complaining because they said, I still don't understand this. Please don't blog so many times a day. It makes me feel bad (laughs) that I can't read them all. And I was like, that's not my problem, but okay, fine. So I decided once a day, And the beauty of that, the magic of that is there's going to be a blog post tomorrow. I don't have to debate it. I just have to say, what's the best one I got? And that was incredibly freeing. 
So when it comes to your blog, because you do it every single day, how do you continue to come up with ideas for it? Everyone has ideas. They just don't write them down. I have never met anyone who had talker's block. I've never met anyone who woke up in the morning and didn't have a single thing. <laughs> Once you know that there's going to be a blog post tomorrow, your brain will fill in the holes for sure. Yeah, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but when we first started the podcast, we... I, I was worried, I was concerned that we wouldn't have the material for an intro every single week. And it's like now two years in, it's like, we're, <laughs> yeah. this, we're, we're fine. Like, and we don't plan them. We literally, we take, we have 30 seconds, like, like exactly how we are now. And I say to Adam, what do you want to talk about today? And then we just go from there. And it's, it's, we had we have allowed ourselves to listen to i suppose listen to that voice of of you're you're never going to think of enough ideas then that would have held us back and we wouldn't yeah. have actually shipped the podcast i think as well like especially at the start there was that pressure of like you've listened to these amazing people kind of what we're talking about at the start is that taste like you've watched the ted talks you've read the best books and then you're there seeming like a newbie a rookie in this world thinking like why is anyone going to listen to me how's my opinion valid and even those like first few episodes that we'd be interesting to listen back to now just to see like if we were really trying to be that TED Talk kind of feel to it instead of just like being ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, my the first five episodes of Akimbo by almost every measure are the best because I've been thinking about them for a year and I was nervous. <laughs> yeah. So I like layered on all this stuff about P.T. Barnum and then it came around a big circle. And now I just go into there and make a podcast. And it turns out people like those better than the early ones. And out of interest, what do you enjoy more? I take more pride in the early ones because I was trying to solve a, a very difficult puzzle. Um, and I know the, the level of effort that went into that. It's a, when I make a book, I don't make a book because it's my job. I make a book because I have no choice. That mm -hmm. I can reach way more people with a blog post in way less time. So a book for me is a demonstration of my priorities and focus to say, this idea wouldn't let go of me. And I have polished it and thought about it and organized it. Whereas if you're reading my blog post, it's just something I thought about and they're different. And I need to have both of those in my life. Um, I think, you know, a hundred years from now, people will point to a couple of my blog posts, but I'm pretty hopeful that a bunch of my books will still be on the table because that's what I tried to do with them is make them so that they had a longer shelf life. What specifically was it about the practice that you, that you had to write this one, especially if it took so long to write? The other stuff I write about um, marketing and social organization and culture fails to work when fear takes over for the reader. That people will agree with it, but then won't do anything because right. they've been sabotaged. And so I knew that if I couldn't get to that next level with people, I wouldn't be unlocking the doors they need to unlock. And then at Akimbo, we ran the creatives workshop. We've run it twice. A thousand people have taken it. It has the highest engagement, more back and forth, more comments between people. We're talking about, uh, the average person gives and gets 500 pieces of feedback in 30 days, more than they've gotten pretty much in their entire professional life. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm onto something here. And I could have just written a few more blog posts about it, but it wouldn't have been a signal to say this, this is worth 
some some years of my life. I think as well, you're going to get people consume things in very different ways. It's like people just won't read blog posts and other people only read books. So there's going to always be, you're going to hit different people with different things. And I think the nice part of having the both of them is you've got almost like the pillar contents of the book. And then you've also got, if someone loves it and they want more, there is something every single day for them to to get on board with. Um, interesting to hear what you think about like, so this is marketing, for example, you're going to get a lot of people read that who, as you say, don't actually put anything into action. Well, I mean, we're humans. The, at that drugstore you go to, if you look around, you will see that a large number of people fill their prescriptions and never take one pill. We have a huge problem with that. Well, the reason is filling your prescription makes you feel like you took action. Taking a pill exposes you to side effects. And so there are different sorts of emotions. And I'm well aware, I'm guilty of it just as much as anybody else, that there's a vicarious thrill to getting close to doing that thing you dreamed of. Whereas if you go yeah. all the way, you might be disappointed. But I don't know who's in which category. So I've got to treat everybody as a potential. And I'm, I mean, just reading my email, people who are 75 write to me saying they'd had something inside of them for 50 years and now they've done it. That's enough reason to get out of bed. For us, it's those it's those messages from people that say that they actually did do the thing because, and I'm sure you get this as well, that they'll, they'll thank you for, and it, our reply is always the same. And I'm sure it's, it's, it will be your replies. We didn't do this. You, you did this. And it's finding that unlock. And Marie Forleo mentioned it when she was on the show. And it's something that you echo in the book of, of that. If you don't share whichever creative, whatever creativity is inside you, if you don't share that, then you're stealing from the world, was how she put it. And and you you say something similar in the book, which makes me think of um, randomly while I'm looking at a spray can on my uh, on my desk, the the invention of, of the spray can was, uh, I don't know if you know the the where it came from, but World War Two, American soldiers in the South Pacific were looking for a solution to get rid of all of the mosquitoes and set all of the world's best site. Well, the country's best scientists on solving that problem. And they came up with these pressurized air containers. And then some bright spark in the 50s managed to put paint inside one of those aerosol cans. And then we have and it's just to think that without World War Two, I wouldn't have a career. And and yeah. just that 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 mad butterfly effect and the way that the that the world works, it, it's like you might have that idea that could become something that could literally change the planet, and and I suppose that's that's the the crux of the book. If I'm going to write a review on it, is if you don't do it, then nothing will change. Yeah, and some people don't want anything to change because there are very few species that want the world to be different. Um, but if you are impatient and you are generous, that combination will help you decide it's worth making a change happen. Yeah. Change is an interesting one. What do you think it is that, cause like some people love change and some people absolutely despise it. What is the difference between those types of people? Well, even the people who love change don't love it in all things. You know, that um, wearing the same clothes every day when you're a fashion designer, there's a reason for that. Because we have a, uh, a limit as to how much we can handle in terms of what's changing. 
the kind of person that is coming at the world with fear, maybe they're just changing what TV show they watch every night because they don't keep watching the same episode of MASH over and over and over again. (laughs) Whereas Andy Warhol listened to the same song all day, every day, right? Because he needed to get bored at that so he could do the other thing. So I think more of it is, do you care enough to change things where you're not sure about what's going to happen after that? Uh, Seth, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Could you let people know where they can find you online and any details that you might want to let people know about the book? Well, first, thank you to both of you for modeling this and for, I know how hard it is to show up on the regular with the podcast as well. So thank you for that. Uh, You can get an excerpt from the book at seth.blog slash the practice and seth.blog has my posts. And if you want to find out about the workshops, they're at akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O dot C-O-M.